Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, do you remember the time we were standing on our back patio and we were talking about something recovery related, of course, something relationship related, how we needed to work on this or we needed to work on that. It was always work, work on something. And you said to me, it was like life changing for me. So I hope you say you do remember, but you, you said to me that we just don't have fun anymore. Do you remember that? I do remember that. How long ago? What was the date and time? (laughs) I don't know that specific. I know. I feel like it was, you know, it was in the springtime. um, And it was a couple years into your recovery. Um, Just because I remember like being out and the garden wasn't like really established or anything. So that's why I remember like that piece of it. You have like a photo memory of it as well. Yeah. And you know, it was just another, like, it was just going to be more conversations and more about this heavy topic, this heavy topic. And, oh, and it was just wearing me down. I felt like I was wearing cement shoes and I had been for years in your addiction and in the early recovery and sobriety piece. So sobriety is hard. Recovery is hard. It is hard work. There's no question, but Having fun is a key component in recovery, both individual recovery and relationship recovery that is often missing for a lot of people. And we've got to find ways to laugh and have fun, which is why I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. Her name is Corey Martin, and she is a comedian slash recovery coach. Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast, Corey. Thanks. I am very excited to be here. And I, I gotta say, I love seeing like the behind the curtain being on a zoom call with you two, watching you do your, do your intro story. It's like, Oh, they're real people. It's like the, the man behind the curtain, great and oh powerful, intoxicated. <laughs> you get to see our fancy recording studio, which is just it's this little high tech. That... It is, it, it is, is impressive. It's high tech. Oh. Well, thank you. Thank you. I haven't you're... seen anything like this in a long time. It's like I walked into like the Matrix. Yeah. yeah. Cool. The Matrix or this like converted walk-in closet on the end of our bedroom where we Sorry. all of our kids lived in their crib for their first few years. Right. I meant that scene in the Matrix where the kid bends the spoon. That's the part of the Matrix that it's um, reminding me of exactly that. So oh, yeah, you really God. nailed it. It's very immersive. Wow. You you have as uh, picturesque or as photogenic of a memory as Sherry does. I'm impressed with yeah. both of you. I... <laughs> Corey, Corey, thanks for joining us. Corey, you, uh, your website is called therecoveryrevolution.com. You are the founder of The Recovery Revolution and the creator of the Heal for Real program for partners and families, which is great because the the majority the kind of vast majority of our listening audience is the loved ones of people in recovery or people who are still actively in addiction and so i think you're going to have a lot to offer the people that are listening today so we're really 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 excited to have you with us today um i want to hear let's just dive right into your story are you yeah. cool with that yeah how I, did how I, did you get involved in 
comedy, first of all, or second of all, I don't know, whatever you want to do. And then also, how did you get involved in the recovery world? The exact same way you did childhood trauma it starts at the same place for everyone comedy and addiction codependency um attachment issues all of these things all start in the same place with our lives right it starts in your life and so i got started in comedy because i adapted from a very young age the coping mechanism of being funny to to work my way through social situations to mitigate problems at home to to manage any of those issues that were too big for me as a kid or too big for me in high school, too big for me as a young adult, I I coped and I dealt with it through humor. And um, it's interesting. I don't find myself funny in conversation that much anymore. Um, I, I definitely can turn it on if I want to. And there are some people I'll just like go right into it. But um, when I'm not when I'm not deliberately intending to be funny, I'm a lot more serious than I used to be. It's a very interesting aspect of the recovery process is I don't feel that need to throw a joke in everywhere anymore. Um, I know a lot of, if any comedians are listening to this and you're considering recovery, don't worry. You can still be funny and sober. You'll just be able to remember the joke at your next set, which is really a benefit for you. So uh, I know that was something that I worried about. I was like, well, yeah, but if I heal, then I won't be funny anymore. That's something a lot of comedians worry about is that going to rehab is going to ruin their career. Oh, that's so interesting. Even, even not from a career perspective, but just from the perspective of somebody who likes to tell a joke at a party and likes to be, I used to like to be the center of of attention in any social Mm -hmm. gathering. I, I now can recognize that my, attempts at humor were just really kind of a cover for insecurities, right? I want to, mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to know the real me. So I'll throw this out there and hope I get a few chuckles and then I can feel comfortable protecting what's really going on in the background. Do you mm-hmm. see it that way at all? I, I see aspects of it that way. I definitely think that humor is still a, a valuable, a, a valuable skill to develop. I think that it's important that we be able to to be funny, to to respond to things with humor, I think is really important. I think a lot of us cope with things that are too real to handle through jokes. And it's interesting, to a degree, using humor to, to deal with emotional issues is actually a, a mature response. It's mature to be able to have that, that humility, that, that ability to sort of self-deprecate, but there's a, there's a degree to which it can definitely get, um, it can become more, for lack of a better word, maladaptive. I know everyone uses that word about things, but it it becomes a mechanism instead of a tool. Humor can definitely be a tool to socially lubricate or to get to the crux of an issue. But when we're using it as our only tool, it's it's kind of that that hammer nail analogy, right? Where humor is the your go-to response. Well, I'm not going to ever look at this in a serious way. I'm just going to find the joke in it so I don't have to put a spotlight on it. I think a lot of us do that. And I, I especially know in, in the comedy world, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people find their way to comedy through through insecurity, through some some fragile feelings about themselves, through some some early childhood experiences or or just early life experiences that they need to manage through humor. And it's to me, I think it's it's sort of a 
kind of a beautiful thing about people that if something is so tragic, we can't handle it. We, we choose to find the opposite perspective. It really is evidence that that is a mind that can heal and can find the joy in life and can find a different perspective around their wound, around their pain. But in that moment, they they just haven't gone quite deep enough to be able to manage it long-term or sustainably. Hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. So uh, you, you used humor, you know, growing up and as a mechanism, as a tool, but how did it become a profession? How did you transition? You know, that's a, that's a big step. That's a big leap. And a bold step. Bold too. Yeah. So, so my, my profession in comedy is a little bit different than most people. My focus is on vaudeville. So short form sketch comedy, uh, musical comedy, original shows and things like that. And I really got started turning this into a career through Renaissance festivals. So I don't know if you've ever been to a Ren Fest before. If anyone listening's ever been to a Renaissance festival, I Big was turkey on- legs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's debatable whether those are turkey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> rumor has it it's something else. What is it? We don't know. <laughs> so, so I started with Renaissance festivals. I actually started in um, on cast, like just performing for free in the lanes and interacting with people. I had done theater. I had done film projects. I had done a little bit of improv, but I hadn't really dug into comedy as something that I was good at. Like I, I knew that people always called me the funny one and everyone was like, oh, you're funny. And you're, and, but that never seemed to me like where I was going to head. Did I compulsively watch Comedy Central's like little half hour stand up specials when I was a kid. Absolutely. But I didn't really have an idea that that's where I was heading. I I was thinking more like Carol Burnett, right? That Lucille Ball, like that, that kind of, of comedy in my life. And it wasn't until I joined the Renaissance Festival and met some people who had a show there who had a sketch comedy troupe and they wanted me to start helping write stuff for them because they in, in conversations, they were like, oh, you're funny. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm skinny and tall. I think that's all. I think that's all I am. I think I'm just weird looking, but if you say I'm funny, (laughs) sure. I'll write some sketches with you. And so, so I started uh, working with them, writing sketches and writing shows. And from there, it was kind of a, kind of a topsy turvy ride um, where I, I did some stuff in burlesque. I did some variety shows. I did some vaudeville shows uh, a lot of self-produced like fringe festival shows theater shows things like that um and then ultimately i decided i want to do more of this i want to take this a little more seriously and be better at it and so i went and i uh, took some classes at second city uh in hollywood uh not the one in chicago but the hollywood one but i went to second city i took comedy writing classes and stand-up classes and uh, started writing some of my own shows. And so my other job is I book shows at Renaissance festivals. Now I actually have three that I'm about to put up in the next week and a half at one of the biggest festivals in the country. So when I'm not doing recovery stuff, I'm still doing the comedy thing. Um, and, and I'm very grateful that it turned out to be true that healing a lot of your trauma and overcoming addiction and codependency did not mean that I had to stop doing that or that I wasn't good at it anymore. It actually meant I was a lot easier to work with. It meant that I was able to find people who wanted to work with me and who enjoyed like my ideas and and wanted to collaborate. And so I'm very, very grateful to find out the rumors are not true, that 
you can heal and still maintain these kinds of these kinds of hobbies or careers, whichever whichever side you're on. And that it's still that creativity piece, because even like musicians and artists, they think they have to be high or stoned or drunk to be creative. And there are so many stories of sober musicians that say, no, like it's better. And, you know, the connection with the audience. But then there's just so many people that like that we've heard and that Mm -hmm. we're like, no, that's got to be untrue. Like that creativity only comes when I'm buzzed. And yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I I used to write when I was drinking and I thought I could only write when I was drinking. And then when I got sober and I read what I wrote when I was drinking, I was like, oh, no, that's not particularly good at all. Sober is a much, much better way to go. So there's actually there's a saying. I don't know if you've heard it before. Um, There's actually a saying in in the arts, but uh, among writers specifically is write drunk, edit sober. Yeah. And that is such a normal thing. It's so normalized that, oh, we're going to write. So everybody like, let's go. We'll meet up at the bar or we'll have people over. We're going to collab. We're going to write. Everyone's got a drink in their hand. And then it's one one guy's job to sift through that and find some kind of a through line. Some nugget. Some nugget that's good. And and it. what was amazing to me is that after I stopped drinking, i like the speed with which I can write a good yeah. show is insane. I can sit down, give me two hours and I can write a half hour show that I can put up at a festival. And yeah. and it doesn't require more editing than just like, hey, we got to move this scene to this part. We got to move these lines over here. That's yeah, it. I, it's. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with that. I've also had kind of out of body experiences writing sober where I have to read back to myself what I wrote to even know what it was. And, you know, I guess it depends on your perspective on things. I would call that kind of divine intervention. Maybe it's kismet or the universe or whatever. But I have definitely had experiences where I didn't feel like I was the writing, the writer. I was just the vessel. And that never happened when I was drinking. But it does happen. Not not all the time by any means, but occasionally as I write sober. Yeah, 100 percent. So I I, if we want to talk about it, we can. Um, but the seven active principles, which is the, like the foundational document that I created, it's really just a list of seven ideas. I had a really hard time for a very long time taking any kind of ownership for that because it felt so divinely guided. I don't remember writing it. I remember reading it after I wrote it. And I remember thinking, this is so, this is it. This is true. This is literally what I did. And this is what worked. And I have to share this with people now <laughs> and and being able to look through that and then see those same principles show up in all these different spiritual paths like, oh, here's evidence for this in the in the Bible. Here's evidence for this in in certain Eastern teachings. Here's all of these suggestions that what I've what I've put down in this is bigger than my brain is bigger than like, this is my idea. Trademark Corey Martin. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that. <laughs> it, oh, that it is, might be. That is. That is so cool. Let's let's make that a tease for now. We're definitely going to get back to that. Can tease it. But yeah. Let's continue to hear your story. We'll keep people on their edge of their seat so they can hear more. Make about, sure they listen till the end. More about the seven yeah. active principles. That's right. Keep them listening all the way to the end. So so keep going. So how does addiction enter your life as you're pr- proceeding through the early stages of your career? So. Honestly, I think addiction entered my life in the form of codependency before any substance ever touched my lips in any way. I 
I can see now in hindsight how deeply codependent I was through high school, especially um, middle school, I think was really where it started to like take off. I could see that I started becoming so dependent on other people. I remember sixth grade, I felt like good about myself. I was, I was weird. I was the president of the goober club in my sixth grade class. And I don't need to explain that, but we had a club. <laughs> Um, and we had like little clubhouses on our desks and I founded this club and it was a club for the weird kids. And I felt good being me in sixth grade. And then middle school, I went to a different school. I was totally out of place, had a hard time making friends. Suddenly I wasn't funny. I'm pretty sure I still was, but suddenly no one cared, <laughs> right? Nobody, nobody knew who I was and nobody cared how I was. And it just started to that. Plus, I think a lot of other childhood experiences just created this like perfect storm of insecurity in me that that manifested into codependency through throughout my middle school and high school um career <laughs> experience where i had friends that i i could not i thought i couldn't live without friends who were struggling and my entire purpose was being the one person that they confided in and that they felt they could trust Friends who, you know, maybe they had a secret and they trusted me with it. And I was like, yeah, look at me. I'm the super lady. I, I hold the secrets. Or maybe I had a friend who's depressed and I'm the one that they're they're crying to. Oh, look, I have some significance here that just built up this need to to be needed, this mm. deep need to be needed. And and it's interesting because my my stepfather had ALS during this time. So he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And he passed when I was 17 or 16 or 17, almost 17. So he he had that for seven years. So from the ages of, I suppose it was nine to 16, I was living with a dying man. Ugh. And I don't think that that made me codependent. I think that that just, I, I honestly think that made me funny. But the absence of connection at home because of that, contributed to my codependency to my need to be needed by people to feel to feel necessary relevant valued in some way and when you don't have that when you aren't getting that at home and when you're not getting that from yourself and you're not getting that from a supportive community at such a young age you it is a survival mechanism you do need to feel like you have purpose in your life and I think that's where codependency starts. And I think it's also where addiction starts to a degree is this is the thing that gives my life not even meaning, but but palatability. This is the thing that allows me to even stand being here. So mm. I've got to have that. If I can't if I can't be drinking, why am I alive? If I can't be helping someone, why am I alive? If I can't be told by somebody that uh, thank you so much. I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be here without you. Why am I alive? And it's really it's fascinating to me because now with the work that I do, I'm hearing those things a lot. And I I appreciate that people are appreciating me, but I don't need it. It doesn't it doesn't fuel me. I could spend the rest of my life not hearing that and I would still feel OK. And that's the the big the big difference between being in active codependency where hearing those things is your lifeblood and you're just waiting for them to give you that little nugget of affirmation and validation so that you can make it to the next nugget because you don't have any in yourself. You don't have a connection to, to a, a spiritual path or, or a faith community. You don't have, um, I'm, I'm not a 12 step person, but you don't have a higher power 
that that is guiding you or supporting you in any way, when you don't have any of that, you need that from someone else. You need that external solution to the internal problem. It's the same thing with addiction and codependency. Well, I want to ask you about the tie-in to the comedy community as well. I am just a sucker for stories about people's experiences. Um, And so obviously celebrities tell a lot more stories or their stories are published a lot more often than just uh, non-celebrity people. Our guy down the street. So yeah. So like (laughs) I'll pick a celebrity and I'll dive deep and, and learn everything I can. And I've heard a lot of people comedians, um, musicians. I've heard a lot of people talk about that buzz, that rush they get when they're on stage and how that external validation, how important that is. I heard mm-hmm. an interview. I, I don't want to name the name cause I'm only 95% sure I remember who it was, but it was a very, very famous musician. And he talked, you know, the kind that gets whisked off the stage by his handlers and is away from the arena in five minutes. And he talked about being in, in a stadium full of screaming fans And then literally 30 minutes later, he was alone in a hotel room and he went from being on this amazing high in front of the fans to being nearly suicidal 30 minutes later alone in this hotel room. And it makes me think of that, you know, the need for external validation. And it kind of ties into with what you're talking about, about needing Mm -hmm. to be a helper, needing, you know, that codependent piece. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you were getting the same kind of juju from helping people that you were getting early in your career in comedy from being on stage? So I, I don't, I don't know that it was the same. That's something that's really interesting to me. And I feel like I'm a little bit lucky in that regard. I've been, I've been performing for longer than I've been codependent. Okay. So because, because my first onstage experience was at four years old, I actually have never really had that high on stage that people talk about. I, I don't really get stage fright. Uh, I The only time I've felt something like stage fright is if I'm like not prepared and I'm about to go on stage with like, and we didn't have enough rehearsal and it's going to be bad. Um, but for the most part, I don't, I don't have that feeling of a high, but I do have a feeling of accomplishment. So for me, what I, what I think, what I think people in that, in that industry are confusing is they're feeling this, they they are feeling this affirmation from the audience. They're feeling this like rush of this emotional surge of like, wow, look at all that I've done and I did all this and this is amazing. And these people are here for me and they love me. And wow, this is, is this what love is? And the problem is they don't, they, they aren't discerning the difference between is this what love is? And is, is does this mean I'm good at something? For mm. me, performing on stage always just meant, hey, you're doing something that you're good at and people appreciate it. And and so for me, it was, oh, nice. I'm glad people appreciate it. I feel good about myself. I do have a sense of like my sense of self is tied to my career. Like most of us, we have a self-concept that is tied to the, the things that we do. Now, we also want to make sure we have a robust enough self-concept that it doesn't crumble if that changes. And I think that's where a lot of people start to to fall apart is they make their entire identity this this performance career or this relationship with the audience. And and it's usually because that relationship with the audience is the only place that they're getting that fulfillment. Uh, I will say when I was the deepest in my codependency, I was performing the least on stage. 
Hmm. So what had what had really happened was I replaced a a what what I had previously as a slightly more stable sense of self and sense of sense of purpose. I had replaced that with a person, with one person who became my purpose. And I think that you can have that same relationship with an audience where the audience as a larger abstraction audience, that is your purpose. Your purpose is those people. Instead of recognizing maybe your purpose is in the creation of of art that they appreciate and that their presence is evidence of your purpose being actualized, right? Their presence at an arena to support you is evidence of your actualized purpose, but their presence isn't the purpose. And I think that's where people really, really fall off in entertainment is they, they create for the affirmation they create for the connection with the audience they they forget that the the purpose is already there the creation is the purpose it is not a means to an end another thing that's very common with performers and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on this you know enough is never enough mm-hmm. they're never satisfied they can never say look i reached the pinnacle or i reached this goal whatever it is yeah it's always as soon as the curtain falls on the last thing, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. What do I have to do to make sure that this thing keeps going? It's like a lack of self-confidence. Is that something you've experienced or seen? So it is, it is something I have experienced and it's something I've seen, but I, I, I think what it is, is to, to get to the the core of it. I think what it is, is a dopamine motivated brain. Mm. If you're dopamine motivated, no amount of audience is enough audience. No amount of show is enough show. Once it's over, you need more of it, right? You're, you aren't recognizing your life across time as, as a series of, of goals that you're achieving that you can then feel good about yourself. And that serotonin carries you to the next goal. If you're, if you're stuck in this dopamine motivation, which some of us are, like ADHD is, is dopamine motivation. Addiction is usually dopamine motivated. When, when that's how you've been functioning, you kind of train yourself to, to be more fueled or fulfilled by the pleasure aspect, by the part that feels good instead of by the part that, you know, means good. I know this means something good is a much different feeling. It's a much more secure and stable feeling than I feel good right now. I just had, oh my gosh, I just had such a great experience. And now my body is full of butterflies. Yay. Like that's, that is what most people experience when they're on stage. I I have experienced that one on stage, but it's the meaning that we attach to it. Do we attach a meaning of this is it? This is all that is. This is the most important thing I could experience. Just like getting high. Can you get high and, and feel, oh, wow, my body's full of bees right now and I can't move my legs or... Or can you feel that and and think like, oh my gosh, this is God. God's in me right now. And if I don't keep doing this thing, then I don't have access to that. If you're just able to take that inventory of what's happening in your body, that it doesn't have to be the temptation that we get sort of stuck with. One of the things that we talk a lot about is self-esteem. Self-esteem as uh, a preventor of addiction, but and also as one of the solutions to addiction. 
And you're making me think about that. If if we have a stable, a healthy baseline, I'm not talking about arrogance, I'm not talking about narcissism, but if we have a stable baseline level of self-esteem, then we don't need this other thing, whether it's performance right. or substance, to lift us out of the muck. If if mm-hmm. we don't start in the muck, then then we can take and take and leave pleasurable experiences and still come back to a baseline that's a place where we can live with ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. is, is that what's missing a lot in performance arts that people's baseline is so low, they've got to chase it all the time. Yes. I think, I think in, in actors, in comedians, in performers in general, anyone who wants to make their career on a stage, it is often, it, it is often underpinned by a, an insecurity, whether that's a low self-worth being i have no intrinsic value a low self-esteem i don't contribute right i'm not good enough like those those look slightly different but but they can lead you into a into a similar um a similar a similar quagmire mm-hmm. where you get you you do get a little bit stuck um just not feeling enough not feeling like you're enough not feeling like you're worth the things that you need to survive feeling like I'm always going to have to strive and do a little bit better. I, I often wonder, do accountants feel that way (sighs) or do they just want to make sure that the numbers match at the end of the day and then they go to bed. You see a lot, you see a lot of, of mental and emotional instability in people in creative fields. Mm -hmm. And I, I think part of that is, is just the nature of the creative brain is, is a little bit more, open and because it's a bit more open it's a little bit less organized right so so we're making connections where we don't need to make connections and we're not making connections where we really need to we're not connecting that hey the fact that you're a human being and all human beings have equal value means that you have value and so you're okay yeah you don't have to prove yourself right well you mentioned that the on-performing stage happened when you were four so you were already feeling really comfortable being on stage, but then also being off stage and you weren't getting your yeah. validation from that. Then codependency creeps in, in the insecure ages of middle school, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but so you're performing, you're a little less um, during those middle school and high school years. So mm-hmm. when you then started going back to performing more um, and you were still codependent and you were creating did you, is that when substances became involved because you thought maybe that creative and open mind and kind of seeing people use? It was very, it was very much the same, the same period of my life as when, when I started back into performing more regularly, that was, I mean, part of that is my age, right? Turning 21. So it just sort of was a normal thing. But interestingly, I, the the codependency was already was already there. I had friends who struggled with mental illness before that. I had friends who struggled with substance abuse before that. And I was not I, I was fairly um buttoned up, fairly straight edge, didn't really do any of that stuff. Um, and it was mostly because at the time I was just very risk averse. I was like, I don't want to mess with my brain. I'm but um lo and behold, I messed my brain up anyway through codependency. Um, but I, I didn't want to engage in that stuff. And so I didn't, but then when I turned 21 alcohol, suddenly it's legal. So I'm no longer afraid of it. I'm not avoiding it because it's not legal. I'm okay. I'll go out and I'll drink. And, 
And it just became a sort of like creepingly more, more and more normal thing throughout my early twenties up to the point that I, I was going out regularly with other, other entertainers, other comedians, other, other dancers, singers, people who that's their lifestyle. The, the place we socialize is bars. The, the thing we want to do when we're not working is being high or being drunk. Mm -hmm. And and so that did become just a more normal aspect of my life. I don't think that the alcohol in, in my life, I don't think alcohol became a problem until I was probably around 26, 25 or 26. I, I can see in hindsight that I definitely started to use alcohol to escape from some conditions in my life that just weren't weren't a match, weren't what I wanted and weren't who I was as a person. And I was doing a lot of things that I wasn't happy with, that I couldn't really live with, but it was a lot easier to live with them if I was drunk. It was easier to accept the the sort of nihilism I already felt in my day-to-day -day life if I was just kind of gone during most of it. So um, after after that era, I when I moved to LA to pursue comedy at Second City, that was actually the first time a comedian talked to me about sobriety. It was also right there on the sort of on the cusp of me really falling into the deep end of of participation based alcohol problems. And and I say participation based because I don't think it would have gone where it did if I wasn't in a relationship with someone who had a drinking problem. Part of the reason I did sort of fall off the the alcohol deep end was because it like the like the Gin Blossom song, I'll follow you down. Right. Oh, you're doing this. I'm doing it too. I'm not going to let you go through this alone. So I'm part of it. And, and that was a, a good, a good portion of my life was under sort of an alcoholic haze. So, yeah, there, you know, you make me think about the fact that that so you follow somebody down, but there's also the aspect of alcohol that it's not only legal, but it's what is commonly used societally used for relaxation for stress relief all we use all these words around it right yeah. so if you've got a part of your life an aspect of your life that you're not happy with or proud of or it's not filling your bucket and it's you an can say yeah. yeah i'm just going to use this to relax and you can do that for a long time without recognizing it as a red flag because right. everybody uses alcohol to relax everybody uses alcohol right. to self-medicate i shouldn't say everybody but a lot of people do they would never use words self-medicate, right? They would, but right. they would certainly say de-stress or relax, or I deserve this at the end of a long day. So mm -hmm. in addition to following somebody down, was it also not obvious to you, you were getting into trouble because everyone around you is, is behaving that way and society kind of endorses it. Does that make so, sense? Yeah. So I noticed that in hindsight, but the, here's the thing. I, I actually in no way begrudge my era of drinking. Okay. I don't, I actually don't regret it at all. I, many of the connections that I have that have fulfilled my life deeply and have actually been a, a, a really important influence in my own recovery are people that I met and relationships I maintained across a bar. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't think that I, I don't personally draw the hard line at like drinking. I know, I know that's pretty pretty normal in recovery is you're like, oh, well, this is poison. And I personally do not enjoy drinking alcohol because it feels like poison inside my body. However, I, I also recognize that culturally and socially there, there are 
there are and can still be important experiences had with the shared experience of drinking, just like you can have important experiences with shared shared experiences of, you know, like, oh, we're both vegan, right? We're both doing this this lifestyle thing, even if it's an unhealthy lifestyle thing or an or a lifestyle thing that's not great. How many how many times have we made friends over gossip? And then we decide that gossip isn't something we want to do anymore. But so does that friend. That friend also decides they don't want to gossip anymore. And we keep the friend, but we leave the gossip. So I I am actually quite grateful for that era of my life that I did spend at mostly at a bar, one bar in particular in in Sherman Oaks, California, where if I hadn't met the people that I was brought to at that bar, I wouldn't have the life that I have today. I wouldn't have learned the things that I've learned. And the amount of people that share that experience of alcohol, it's so diverse. It's so vast because it is so normalized and it's all over society. So every single person that you need to talk to at one point or another might be found at a bar. Even if, even if that's not the best point in their life, even if that's not, you know, their most wise and most healed version of themselves, you don't have a guarantee of meeting everybody at their best, right? So if, if the important thing is to be able to make connections and make relationships and, and have a fulfilling life, like you guys said, having fun, then I don't, I don't want to begrudge myself the, the years that the only way I could have found those people was at a bar. Because for for me, part of what made it so easy to easy to kind of slide down into is that in LA, everything's at a bar, right? Mm. We have sober bars now so that you can still go to a bar. You just don't have to drink alcohol, but it's all, it's all this communal experience where we're joining together uh, with a table and a thing that we're doing, we're putting something in our mouths, right? We've got a table and a thing to consume and right now in our culture that is a bar i say right now but it's really been that way for hundreds of years and and i can't i can't really in good conscience say that like oh well yeah society endorses this and that's why that's why it's a problem i think the bigger problem than society endorsing alcohol as a coping mechanism is the fact that as a society we don't at the same time encourage emotional intelligence and and mature emotional development from a young age. These aren't things that we learn in school. When a kid has an outburst, they're put in timeout. When a kid has an outburst, they're told that they're wrong. Instead of they're told, hey, what's happening in your body right now? Let's work through this together so that you know how to respond to your body feeling a feeling that's yucky. I say that in, in kid terms, but if we were teaching people that, the presence of bars and the social endorsement of alcohol as a stress reliever wouldn't be a problem. It would yeah. just be a pastime. Yeah, I, I think the importance of community cannot be overstated. Uh, I saw some research just recently that the thing that is most effective in the recovery community, it's not the specific, necessarily, not necessarily the specific mode that you choose, uh, whether it's the 12 mm-hmm. steps or something else. It's that community piece that is right. so effective for people. And that ties right in with what right. you're saying. The community piece can be a bar absent alcohol basically. Um, but that is so important. And I am, I do have hope for future generations. I, I coach high school soccer and my kids, these teenagers, they talk about their therapy sessions now out in open in front of each other. Oh my God. When I was a teenager, I'd gotten pummeled if I had, well, first of all, I didn't, 
you know, nobody was even considering going to therapy when I was a teenager. But if I was, I would have been pummeled for talking well, openly about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did, you know, you, you're following the, the person down, um, you're drinking to cope. When did things turn around? Talk to us about what the beginnings of recovery looked like for you. So the, for me, it started at a bar. How the beginning, Yeah. The beginnings of recovery started at a bar. It started in the conversations that I was having with people at that bar who were concerned about me, concerned about aspects of my life that weren't healthy. Um, drunken conversations with my best interests at heart. That was actually where it started. Um, conversations on the patio at my home bar where I felt safest with people who who cared about my my spiritual well-being and were willing to have those conversations with me. Were we both three sheets to the wind? Yes, but I remember those conversations. And those were the conversations that started planting the seeds in me that allowed me to start making different decisions. I'm actually really glad you asked me about that because I think one of the biggest misconceptions in recovery is that in order to recover, you have to recover first. In order to get sober, you have to be sober first. Like in order to get help for this emotional and psychological problem that you have, you first have to stop having that mm. problem so you can put down the bottle. So the, the seeds can't be planted when you're still the, actively using and you you reject that. Yeah. the Well, yeah. the idea is that those seeds can't be planted and that's false. That's, yeah. I don't just reject it. it is, it's just a falsehood. And I don't yeah. think it helps people to say that. To, I, I think it actually separates I don't just think I've seen I've seen this happen, but I think it separates people from the help they need when we say that in order for you to get the help you need, you first have to solve your problem. Mm. Alcohol is a solution. Alcohol is a solution. (laughs) Chemically and metaphorically, alcohol is a solution. That's that's what we're reaching for. We're reaching for a solution. We're already committed to fixing whatever's going on in here. We just need to be spoken to in a way that the real problem underneath the alcohol can be addressed. As long as we're focusing on whether or not alcohol, you know, whether or not society is pushing us to drink more or whether or not, you know, we we need to develop different coping mechanisms and alcohol is the wrong one. And all of these conversations circles, they, they kind of circle around alcohol. Alcohol is central. To all these conversations, but alcohol isn't central to the person who's an alcoholic. Pain is central yeah. to the person who's an alcoholic. Yeah, I would, from my side of it, I would push back and I would clarify to say alcohol is an ineffective solution or it's a solution that works for a while until it stops working. You hear a lot of people say that, and that's certainly sure. my experience. Um, so maybe not a long term effective solution, but you're certainly trying to solve a problem when right. you are drinking. I get that. Yeah. So the reason the reason I d- I distinguish that and I don't use a word like ineffective I don't say anything about that is because I I do think it's it is from from my perspective of the clients that I work with the partners and families of people in addiction the more you talk about alcohol as the problem the less they can focus on what the problem actually is the more focused and fixated those partners become on solving that person's drinking problem and the more the the more separated they become from connecting with that person who has a deeper problem that needs to be seen. So when we can talk about alcohol as as a solution someone has chosen and we can validate that that is that you did choose that to fix a problem. I totally see that. 
I see that this problem is real and that you are trying to feel better. There's not a lot of room in that conversation to say to that person who is drunk right now in front of you and in pain, this is this is an ineffective solution. As soon as you say this is an ineffective solution, you have crossed the line from compassion to judgment. So I don't I don't use that kind of language for the most part because I've not found it to to get people where they need to go. And for me, my own recovery process, I had tons of people telling me that I was doing stuff wrong and that I wasn't being healthy and that I was making bad decisions and that I I had good intentions, but it just wasn't working. And those are not the voices that stuck. Those aren't the voices that I heard ultimately. The voices that I ultimately heard were the ones that that acknowledged how I was feeling and what I was needing. Just just that outside of the context of the problem, right? Yeah. So kind of pushing the alcohol aside and focusing on the real issue at hand. I mean, and then, you know, cause there's a lot of times, and I know in Matt's journey for sobriety, permanent sobriety, it was, it was a lot of, you know, it'd be months of not drinking and then back to it. I've got a new plan, mm-hmm. but and still you start. And then you had depression and anxiety that was starting to really mm-hmm. become, you know, Debilitating. debilitating. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to put words in your mouth, debilitating. Um, and then you realize that had been alcohol had been kind of your solution for that and some, mm-hmm. you know, insecurities and stuff. So you're saying you in your coaching, um, you like to kind of work on the mental health aspect of it that. So and then hoping that the alcohol will just dissolve. So away. It, it's not it isn't a hope. I don't really do much much of my coaching based on a hope. Um, because I work with the partners and families, my focus is on shifting their perspective so that they can start having a different kind of conversation with their loved ones who are struggling. I I have not seen personally, I have not seen effective recovery reached through judgment. I've seen the beginnings of recovery reached, but it's usually not long term. Mm-hmm. So so my intention behind the way I speak about alcohol and the way I speak about all of this stuff is for the perspective of someone who doesn't have the problem. Because the person who has the problem, we can totally say like, oh yeah, it's not an effective solution. And I agree for me, from my perspective, that was not an effective solution. We can have that conversation all day, but here's here's the the issue I think a lot of us run into and we don't realize we're running into it. You said it yourself. Um. A majority of your listeners are partners and families. It's not just you. A majority of sober content is consumed by the partners and families, not the people who are ready to get help, but the people who are trying to help someone. And Mm -hmm. the more someone on the outside is hearing stories from someone on the other side, the more judgment and comparison starts to breed in them. So the more a, a wife of an alcoholic hears from a recovered alcoholic, the more she thinks, why can't he be like that? Why can't mm. he realize that? More and judgment. That, that's more judgment. And, it's, mm. and it separates them further and further and further from being able to connect. So part of the recovery revolution, the, the, the main purpose of the recovery revolution is to be able to reach those partners and families from a perspective that they need to hear, not just being able to reach them and say, hey, addiction's bad and alcohol doesn't work, but saying, hey, 
the problem that they're dealing with doesn't look like what you think it does. The problem they're dealing with looks like this and giving them an actual peek behind the curtain of what their loved one is going through right now. Not where they'll be, hopefully in six months to a year, but where they are right now. What is their what are they feeling and what are they thinking? And how is how is their loved one relating to their addiction? Because if you can't understand that, then you can't connect to that person. You're not relatable yeah. to them. Your your thinking is so it's refreshing, it's open-minded, it's compassionate, it's different than almost anything else you ever hear in the recovery community. I want to talk about how you got there. Yeah. You said you're not a 12-stepper. When when people were first reaching out to you in bars and saying, hey, Corey, I think, I think maybe there's an issue. Hey, Corey, yeah. go to Coda. Hey, Corey, yeah. you should try Al-Anon. Yeah. Did, did you try? I, I did. Okay. Um, what happened? I went to I went to the recommended six meetings. I'll tell you my Al-Anon story. So I went to the recommended six meetings. They said try it, like go to six meetings. Don't don't just stop at one. You might not be the meeting for you. Try different parts of town and yada yada yada. So, so just tried- to clarify, the the concern of the people that are in your ear is not for your drinking. It's because of this person that you're following down. That that's the concern. Okay. Okay. That I did not I did not stop drinking. I did not stop drinking through any kind of recovery modality. I stopped drinking because I decided I didn't like how I felt. Okay. Yeah. And and I got to the point of deciding I didn't like how I felt through through trying to solve my partner's addiction. Everything I was trying to learn about him overcoming drinking, I was I was consuming all of that material. Sure. That material all the sober material is great if you're the one struggling. So luckily I was also struggling. And the more I consumed trying to save him, the more it kind of started to get in at me that like, oh, hey, you have a problem and this isn't working. Right. Okay. So that stuff works really well for people who are struggling with the problem. Like it hearing from someone who's been where you are and is on the other side of it, that works for the alcoholic. It works for the addict. It doesn't work for the partner because she's not there. She's not there already. So, Mm -hmm. so for me, I stopped drinking very organically. I did. I never went to a 12 step meeting. I never sought therapy for my drinking problem. I had enough people talking openly about sobriety and I consumed enough content that just made me be like, oh yeah, this is dumb. Why am I still drinking? If I don't want him to be drinking, I should probably just stop. Right. Mm -hmm. It, so it, it came about to me very obviously as like a a core hypocrisy in my own life where I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing the thing I don't like. I should stop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I had my own sort of like rock bottom binge weekend, but I don't think that that weekend was the reason I realized it. I think that weekend happened while I was realizing it. Right. So so on this course of like, oh, I'm not going to drink as much. Oh, I might not drink anymore. Oh, I might be done. I I wasn't quite done yet. And then I drank again and I was like, oh, no, I'm good. Hmm. That was it. That was enough. Yeah. I think I've drank enough alcohol now. I've found the bottom. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I I just got I just became done with it. And um and through my own becoming done with it, I also realized like here are here's the thought process you actually have to go through in order to decide you're done. And since that's the process I had to go through, that's the process he's going to have to go through. So how does he get there? Oh, not by me yelling at him. Yeah. Oops. 
not by me not by me trying to like manipulate or control the situation not by me trying to like bribe him with with sex or with ignore ignoring him or with you know punishment or anything it how did i get here oh i got here by people just like being chill about not drinking enough and and talking about the fact that they don't drink anymore it was about a year and a half to when i stopped drinking that my partner at the time said to me i'm really proud of you he was drunk at the time blackout drunk and he said i'm really proud of you for quitting i'm proud of you that you were able to stop i don't know if i can stop the next day he went to rehab hmm. so so i i do i do believe that this is possible for for a a partner to to learn how to behave around someone in such a way that they can they can find that solution um but as far as alanon it that wasn't it I tried Al-Anon and I used everything Al-Anon told me to do. I did everything Al-Anon told me to do. It made the problem so much worse. For a short period of time, it made the problem a lot worse. Um, That was a period during which my my partner at the time was struggling emotionally and mentally. And the alcohol reflected that. The amount he was consuming reflected that. Um, The reason I stopped going to Al-Anon meetings was because after a night where he had attempted suicide, I went to a meeting and their response to me was keep coming back. It works if you work it. No one gave me any pragmatic, effective support for dealing with someone who was attempting to end his life via alcohol. Hmm. And and that was the moment at which I kind of just had what I what I sometimes and my mother sometimes describes as the sense of like black wings flapping. It's very interesting. It happened to be a meeting in a Catholic church, but it just did not feel particularly good. I, I just got a sense that everyone in this meeting is not connected to people in addiction. They're disconnecting from these people. They're not trying to help. They're just trying to stay safe they're not trying to grow they're trying to protect and that wasn't something i was trying to do i wasn't interested in that i had already gone through my own my own process of of getting sober i had quit uh cigarettes i had resolved a lot of dietary issues and like eating disorder issues i'd gone through my own recovery processes in a lot of areas of my own life and so when i noticed at that meeting these people aren't here for you right? Me as a person who'd had the experience in addiction. When I noticed these aren't the people you would have wanted to connect with. So if you're learning from them, you're not connecting with him. Hmm. If you're learning from them, you're not able to, to make this happen. And the research shows that that's also the case. So it's, it's, you've alluded to it and it's fairly universally agreed upon that you know, the idea of pestering or begging or yelling or screaming or cajoling or even um, ultimatums and threats. None of that is effective to get somebody who has a substance use problem to recognize it. Um, you know, the, the alter- one of the alternatives is the concept of disconnection and taking care of yourself and leaving that person to deal with themselves. It sounds like you're you're threading the needle through compassion and going somewhere different. And I'm hoping that you'll talk to us now about the seven active principles of conscious recovery, how that came to be, and what exactly is the solution in your opinion? So 
the so I, I want to start with what you sort of alluded to, which is the Al-Anon, Al-Anon version of detachment. I like that you said disconnection because that's actually what they teach in Al-Anon. They don't teach detachment as it would be taught in Stoic philosophy or Eastern philosophy, where detachment is a is a core tenet. Al-Anon teaches detachment in a slightly different way. Now, I know in some of the literature, they may nail it, but it really doesn't matter what the book says, as we can all know from church. It doesn't matter what's in the book. It matters what people are sharing with each other and what people come to believe is true. Yeah, those darn and humans get in the way of the, they get uh, in the, way, the right? well-written stuff sometimes. Yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, totally know what you're talking yeah. about. What they teach in Al-Anon, the version of detachment that most people learn through Al-Anon looks more like what you said, disconnection, where the the goal is keep myself safe by not not engaging with you um not trusting you no longer feeling close intimate feelings for you no longer feeling a romantic connection to you the inevitable outcome of this behavior is separation there there isn't a lot of relate there aren't a lot of relationships saved by alanon there are a lot of people who will report that alanon saved my life but they're reporting that from a a sort of model of the world that's based around victimization a model of the world based around this person's addiction was a problem for me this person's addiction was something happening to me their behavior while they were under the influence was directed at me and therefore it's about me and alanon taught me to stand up to them Al-Anon taught me that it was okay to punish the person in addiction by saying, get out of my life. I don't want to talk to you ever again. Al-Anon taught me that it was okay to separate from someone who struggled with an addiction. Now, are there people in addiction who are also a problem to be in a relationship with? And maybe we just can't engage with them in relationship. Yes. But is alcohol and addiction synonymous with abuse? No. And the problem that Al-Anon breeds is this idea that the existence of addiction in one person's life is evidence of abuse in another person's. So you have wives seeing their husbands drink too much and thinking, he's not there for me. He's a bad husband. He's abusing me. Hmm. Instead of seeing their, their husband struggle with alcohol and thinking, he is struggling. He needs something. I'm going to. I'm going to pray for him, right? Or I'm I'm going to take as good of care of myself as I possibly can so that he doesn't have to worry about more than his health for right now because he's clearly overburdened. Oh my goodness, this is a man who is having a hard time existing. That should, if we're healthy, that should well up some compassion in you if that's your partner. Hmm. In Al-Anon, it does the opposite because we are we do hear stories about addiction as tied with perspectives of abuse not necessarily genuine real stories of abuse but perspectives of abuse by by perspectives of abuse i mean for example if um if say your partner drinks too much and he's loud when he's drunk and you are very uncomfortable with the fact that he drinks too much and you believe that him drinking too much is a huge character defect that makes him a bad person and then he drinks you already have a belief around what that means about him you have a belief about around him as a person who deserves that judgment then he drinks and gets loud 
And suddenly that loudness and that drinking equals abuse to you because you've drawn a line between his, his addiction and your opinion. And you've made them, you've made those the same. So instead of, instead of looking at alcohol as a solution, and again, we, we talked about this, Mm -hmm. um, I would call it an ineffective solution, but Mm -hmm. instead of looking at the fact that the person has a root cause problem that they are, they're attempting to solve, we're making moral judgments based on, um, you know, what we're hearing from others and, and just kind of the perspective that society has it, you know, alcohol is great. It's, it's, uh, it's meant for celebration. It's meant for mourning. It's meant for all these things, unless you cross some invisible line and then it's bad. And the person who does it is bad. And so we make that judgment. Exactly. You nailed it right there. It's alcohol is great until you cross the invisible line after which I can judge you harshly and, and, and harbor disdain and contempt for you. And that's just not, not only is it not true, it's not fair. It's not fair to the person who's struggling. And it's even, even not fair for the person who's casting that judgment because that person is not looking at their own behavior. That person is not taking any responsibility. And that person is on a collision course for misery for the rest of their lives if they don't get on top of it. I genuinely think that codependency is a harder addiction to overcome than alcohol, because at the very least, we recognize alcoholism as a bad thing. And and codependency can be masked as so many different things. Code, uh, I In one of my workshops, and actually my free workshop, so anybody listening that wants to learn this, I've got a whole thing you can you can hop into, but I have something called the codependency pendulum. And on the codependency pendulum, you have a side that is too involved and you have a side that is too disconnected. Mm-hmm. And along this pendulum, we're swinging from dysfunction to dysfunction. And we're thinking, I've tried everything. I've tried neglectful abuse and I've tried violent abuse. Why isn't it working? And so we've tried the, re- the two extremes yeah, in reality. We've tried the two extremes and we haven't learned how to find balance. Al-Anon sits on the, on the detached to extreme side of things, the disconnected to extreme. It's not a solution for healing a relationship affected by addiction. It is a solution to enmeshment and over-involved codependency, right? In the same way that alcohol isn't a solution to finding a healthy and happy life, it's just a solution to shutting off the pain for a moment. It's a solution to temporarily shut off the pain. So what we really have to do is reevaluate our goals. That's why I I still use the word solution because it is a solution to a smaller problem. It's a solution to a problem that that we could resolve on a grander scale if we changed the focus that we're dealing with. If we focused in more on, on, okay, what's the core of that problem? What's the core of that pain? Does alcohol solve that? No. All right. Let's see if we can find a more encompassing solution. Let's see if we can find a broader solution. Uh, a more, uh, you know, what's it called? A one-stop shop solution. Let's see if we can find something that deals with a few of these problems instead of just that one little, little symptom, right? With, with Al-Anon, we're dealing with that one little symptom of, of over, over attachment or enmeshment, and we're responding to it with detachment, but we're not solving the problem of, of poor attachment skills, of an inability to feel compassion for your loved one or of a, a disconnect in your ability to connect. 
I love the pendulum analogy, the pendulum visual. Uh, Sherry can attest to the fact that I use pendulum visuals a lot. Uh, it's kind of weird. So you and I are on the same page. And you with talk that. with your hands. And, and I talk with my hands. Our podcasts are so just podcasts. So. But do, do the do the seven active principles address keeping that pendulum kind of in the middle a little better? Oh, your other favorite so, word, homeostasis. Yes. There we go. So the seven active <laughs> principles, the reason that these are so much different from Al-Anon or AA and 12 steps is that it's not a series of steps. So the reason that I've named it active principles is that these are these are principles that are supposed to be present in in each and every moment of your recovery process. Now, you're not going to nail it every time you're learning, right? But with the seven active principles, you have <laughs> verb-based behaviors. So it's not just it's not just like, hey, here's a step and you do it once. No, hey, here's a principle that you live in each of these decisions. Are you about to do something, but you forgot principle three th through five? Well, then maybe that's not going to serve you very well. And these principles are are based on, um, they're, they're from a lot of different places. Like I said earlier, if you'd like, I can I can walk us through them. Um, usually I don't, I don't really introduce people to the seven active principles until they join one of my, either my free Facebook group or one of my coaching groups. And I know that they can actually wield these ideas safely. Um, but I'd how about be happy just to, one, how yeah. about just one as a tease? We get kind of a feel sure. for, for Pick your favorite. So, yeah. So the first, the first one is the one that I, I, I put the first one first, because I think it's the one that you do need to start with and you have to be able to wrap your brain around before the rest of them can, can really sink in. The first one is we understand there's your verb that people are not solely defined by their behaviors. Ooh, I like that. I like that. So starting with that first principle it it cuts through that myopic judgment uh you know sort of critical mind that we often have around people who struggle with addiction where we see oh so and so is drunk they are a drunk no so and so mm -hmm. is drunk they are drunk right now mm -hmm. he is drunk right now does not mean that all that he is throughout his life is drunk he was also born. He also was crying. Is he crying because he cried as a baby? No. He he was hired. Is he an employee for the rest of his life? Probably not. Right. So all of these all of these moments in our life are not the defining are, are not singularly defining characteristics. And I think that's where 12 steps really, really falls off the wagon. <laughs> Sorry for the, for the mixing good. of That's those pretty metaphors, good. right? Yeah. 12 steps really falls off the wagon when they start talking about defects of character because a defect of, a judging a defect of character decontextualizes all those behaviors from that person's life and their experiences. And the goal with, with the recovery revolution, with my programs and the intention behind the seven active principles is that we want to keep the context of people contained. We want to be able to look at that whole person. What else is going on underneath that? What does that mean? What can that, we do with what that means? Can we respond to a bigger piece of them? Can we respond to a different piece of them? Or can we only respond to the loud behavior that we're seeing in front of us right now? You've clearly thought this through. You've, you've written it down. You've developed programs around it. This is well thought out. 
but it reminds me of a very unwell thought out way that I have started to respond differently in longer term sobriety. When I see somebody behaving in a way that would kind of objectively be considered not okay, um, rather than immediately look to blame that person or call names or or yell or whatever, or be offended, even, even internalize that and be offended by it. My, my go-to now is what happened? What, what's in, in influenced this person that's creating this behavior? Where's the pain? What happened to this poor person? You know, not this poor person. I don't want to make it sound like I'm looking down upon people because we're all poor people. We're all people that have had negative impacts in our life, but that's flawed. Yeah. But that's where I go now instead of being like, I'm, you know, and it it doesn't even have to be someone I'm in relationship with. So the, the person checking me out at the grocery store can be nasty. And instead of thinking you should have better customer service, I'm going to tell your manager, I'm not going to shop here anymore. I think, (laughs) boy, I wonder what happened to this person on the way to work today. Or I wonder, I wonder what bad, I wonder how many nasty customers have come through this line to put this person in this mood. And, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is tying in with what you're saying, but it's what you're making me think of. No, you're absolutely right. Because the thing that is, that is tying the, the, the thing that's tying through all of this is perspective. Mm. That's where we get really lost. We get lost in the weeds. When we have a loved one who struggles with addiction, we lose perspective because we're so focused on what we're experiencing right now. We're in our bodies and we're feeling nervous and we're feeling worried and we've been consuming all this sobriety content that we're comparing them to. And then we see that they're drunk. And on top of the sobriety content, I'm about to blow some people's minds with my predictive skills on top of the sobriety (laughs) contact on top of the sobriety content. We are also consuming a lot of Instagram pseudo therapy telling us that we deserve better and that the people in our lives that behave certain ways are toxic and that we're being abused and that we are we are experiencing something insurmountable we need to go spend our time in some freaking villa in the bahamas so that we can live our best girl boss life that's mm. the other thing they're consuming on top of the sober content so while they're listening to to all this stuff about how people can get better and things can be improved. They're also getting the comparison from the other side, that the things in their life aren't good enough, that the people in their life aren't good enough, that every single thing a person ever does is a red flag. And that the only way to overcome that is to disconnect yourself from all the toxic people. But guess what? That's everybody. Hmm. That's every person you'll ever meet because we are all a little fucked up. We are all slightly flawed. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more with that. It, it it seems to me that it's a fine line. It's a case by case situation. Certainly you'll acknowledge, I think, and well, I think you did already you, earlier, you talked about, you know, there are abusive behaviors that mm-hmm. coincide with addictive behavior. So mm-hmm. sometimes somebody gets drunk and behaves in a way that the the person on the receiving end shouldn't accept, um, you know, often even, but what you're saying is we shouldn't generalize this and just assume that drunk equals abuse. Um, it's gotta be analyzed and, and done so with compassion. Basically what I'm saying is that we, we as individuals have a really, really 
biased lens of our own experiences. And that if you've consumed enough of a certain kind of content, anyone in your life can seem abusive. That doesn't mean that some people who are consuming this content aren't legitimately in abusive relationships. Some of them may be. But part of what you want to look for is somebody who can actually walk with you through a through a sober-minded analysis of what's going on in your life. And that's not what you're going to get when you're just clicking around on social media or if you're just sitting in an Al-Anon meeting hearing people share things and you're consuming that through your filter. You really want to be able to sit with somebody who has a clear understanding and a compassionate understanding of people. And part of my hope and my goal with the recovery revolution is that we can start having more of those people in the world. Is that more people can learn how to view people holistically. More people can start to learn how to have compassion for people who are struggling while still doing the necessary, the necessary, taking the necessary steps to protect people who are genuinely being harmed and victimized. I will say part, part of the limitation here is that even if you are being legitimately victimized, if you don't get to the bottom of why you were in that situation in the first place, it usually happens again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can you can decide that alcoholic was the abuser and I'm leaving them and look at me. I'm free now because I got away from the abusive alcoholic, but I didn't do any of the work to figure out why I was attracted to that guy in the first place. And who's mm. the next one? Is he worse? He's usually mm. worse. Wow. Wow. You've given us so much to think about. You talked about the kind of pseudoscience, pseudopsychology that is prevalent on uh, social media. Um, One of the nice things about having a conversation like this is we can go deep and we can talk, you know, in a big way about the things that are going on. And even, I know we're over an hour, I don't have a timer on this right now, but even with this substantial conversation, I still feel like we're just at the tip of the iceberg. I know when we were setting this up, you made a great joke. You talked about the the long form that is things like a podcast episode that runs for over an hour as the canasta game, um, which you <laughs> cracked me up. I'm definitely firmly in the canasta game as opposed to the social media game. Um, but if people want to learn more, if this tip of the iceberg conversation uh, intrigues people, uh, we want to direct them to your website, therecoveryrevolution.com. Can you talk about some of the the things they'll find there? So on my website, therecoveryrevolution.com, you'll find access to programs that I've created based on the seven active principles. You'll find uh, my free workshop. There's a link to register to access the free workshop. It's an on-demand workshop that you can register as many times as you need to, watch as many times as you need to. And that workshop, that's where I go into the codependency pendulum. It's really the first the first step of the process of going deeper and understanding how, how we can show up differently for someone who struggles with addiction, how we can start to unpack some of the things that maybe we believe because we've gone to Al-Anon meetings. Maybe we believe these things because we've read certain books that had outdated information about addiction. And so we think that we know everything and yet what's happening in front of our very eyes is blowing our mind and we can't make sense of it. If you've learned everything, 
it's going to make sense to you. I promise <laughs> it's, it's not going to, it's not going to be as confusing. So my program heal for real is a much more deep dive. It is a six month program. And I've really designed that as a rehab for us. And by us, I mean the partners, the loved ones, the family members, addicts, alcoholics get to go to rehab. Where does, where does she go? She goes to Al-Anon and that's just not good enough. So I created Heal for Real so that there was a solution to that caliber, to that depth of, of knowledge and self-reflection and healing that partners and families of people in addiction can get the help that they need so that they can create an environment conducive to a functional long-term recovery. So that's what you'll find if you go to the recoveryrevolution.com. But I also highly, highly recommend following me on Instagram because if you're following anything else, you're going to fall down that rabbit hole I just talked about. But at the very least, if you can follow the recovery revolution, you will get a research-based, perspective-based, insightful conversation around addiction. And that's what we all need if we want to get out of this thing unscathed. That is some great advice. Follow the Recovery Revolution on Instagram. We will link to the recoveryrevolution.com in the show notes for this episode. Uh, one of the things I want to say in closing that we want to do here on the Intoxicated Podcast is we don't want to just be an echo chamber. We don't want to just bring on people who are going to recite the exact same things that Sherry and I believe in the exact same things that we share with other people. We want to be an, an opportunity to present some new ideas. And honestly, some of the things that you've shared today, it's the first time I've heard them. And you've really got me um, like assigning myself the duty of uh, digging deeper and, you know, just considering some of your philosophies. It's, it's really great stuff. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, the open-minded approach, the deep thinking that you've done, and, you know, obviously, if the solution in the recovery community was widely known, we'd have solved both codependency and addiction a long time ago. And mm -hmm. we need people like you who are exploring, pushing boundaries, pushing back and creating new and exciting things. So, so thanks for coming on today and sharing with our audience all that you have to offer, Corey. Really appreciate you being here on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been very fun. You're both great. Excellent. Ah, thanks. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.